I think that we give too much credit to letting our kids go. I think that we should be should be involved with them. We should view our parenthood as courageous parenting and apprenticing people into adulthood and as followers of Christ, discipling them into lifelong uh, relationships with Jesus. Welcome to the Strategic Families Podcast, where we challenge families to be rooted in God's Word, energized with gospel-centered purpose, and activated on mission for His kingdom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Strategic Families Podcast. This is Graham Clark, and today is episode 1.10 with my buddy Cliff Wright. Cliff is a great guy and a great communicator, someone who has spent a lot of time working with young people and who understands young people well. He's got a lot to teach us about how to interact with them on things like technology and friend groups and how to help them see themselves as part of a larger story that God is writing in our families. So I think you're really going to be blessed and encouraged by this interview. All right, let's roll it. Well, I'm excited for you guys to hear today from my buddy Cliff Wright. Cliff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be on. Awesome. Well, why don't you just introduce yourself to us, marriage, kids, and uh, what you do for a living? Yeah, my name is Cliff Wright, married to Laura for 13 years now. Um, Four kids, Keller, Asher, Pryor, and Ryder, ages nine, seven, four, and one. And uh, I serve as the executive director for the Charlotte Eagles. Awesome. Four kids. Man, who has four kids? Crazy people have four kids. <laughs> Only people with four kids can make a joke like that. But uh, that's awesome. Well, I want to talk about, obviously, we're going to talk about young people and what it means to belong in a family and for young people to find a sense of belonging. But first, I want to dive into your work with Charlotte Eagles. What a fantastic organization. My wife, Katie, and I are privileged enough to participate in the soccer efforts that you guys have. But I know it's a lot bigger than soccer. Can you just talk to us about your intention with Charlotte Eagles and what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, the Charlotte Eagles. Uh, I think it's. I think it's a really cool organization. We. I like to say we're a we're a world changing, disciple making, community building mission, cleverly disguised as a soccer club. And so we leverage the tool of soccer. It could be anything, but for us, it's soccer. We leverage the tool of soccer to get through the front door of people's lives, but we really want to be in the living room. And so we take folks who have a certain certain giftedness. Uh, with this game or kind of uh, around this game um, and we teach them to use it uh, missionally Um, and I kind of hope that the way that we use soccer would inspire folks to use the gifts that they've got in every single way to live kind of this incarnational missional life in the world around them. Mm, That's awesome. Can you unpack that word incarnational for us? That might be a word that and I've heard it before but I'd love to just hear your definition and, and what you mean by that. Yeah, cool. Um, now, in uh, well, in, incarnational is obviously based off of incarnation and the incarnation of Christ. And incarnation is kind of broken down into incarnate, which means in the flesh. So it's God in the flesh. It's how God theologically, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and man is dwelling among us. It's how God retained all of God's godhood and also took on humanity at the same time. And when you talk about incarnational approaches to ministry, you're talking about really believing that as Jesus lives in me, Christ in, Christ in you, the hope of glory, of how you take your life and intentionally put it out into the world uh, with people who may or may not believe like you do. Um, and it kind of impacts your mindset of how you go into any situation, realizing 
realizing that Jesus Christ lives in me, like his Holy Spirit, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that as I encounter folks who don't know him, that there's liter- literally something different about me. And that as people encounter you, um, as Christ lives in you or me, as Christ lives in me, that, um, that in a way they're encountering Christ, um, that we try to incarnate Christ in our lives the way that God uh, incarnated Christ in, uh, in humanity. That's fantastic. Now, I know that only a man who has spent years of his life living that out with a fantastic missional organization like Young Life could talk so intelligently about incarnational ministry. So that's a, that's a tie-in. Let's talk about your ministry with Young Life. I mean, anybody who knows Young Life knows what a blessing and amazing ministry it is. Talk to us about how long you were with Young Life and what your role was there and how that has shaped your ministry with Charlotte Eagles. Yes, I love Young Life. Uh, <laughs> Young Life's motto is you were made for this. And I, I feel so strongly that I was made for this. That sometimes it's hard to believe that I was made for anything else. But uh, by God's grace, he showed me that that he had more planned for me than Working in that, but I encountered Young Life as a 15-year-old uh, at my high school, and uh, I was I was largely hooked from the beginning. Um, I loved the way that my leaders talked about Jesus like they knew him, and these were the same people that were showing up uh, in my world. They uh, would show up in the parking lot of my high school, uh, show up at my soccer games, and stand in the student section of football games, and they offered to tutor me in math, which if you know me, I'm horrific at math. And uh, eventually invited me to go to a camp with them. And uh, I went to Colorado and that's where kind of all of the pieces of a relationship with Jesus kind of came together for me. I was raised in a really great church, really great family. uh, And God used Young Life too. And people that were not my parents, not church uh, people that I went to church with. God used these people that he lived in to put all the pieces together for me. And Young Life is really cool because it intentionally steps into the teenage world to build bridges of authentic friendship, knowing that Jesus lives in the people who are building those bridges and in hopes that the folks that they're building the bridges with will be intrigued by what they see. I think it's Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom towards them that are without redeeming the time as you go. And and that's what Young Life leaders try to do. And all of the missional priorities kind of flow out of the sacred relationship that that Young Life leaders have with kids. And as they step into the teenage world, they're not just going to meet Christian kids. They're really going to meet all kids. And these days, the teenage world is more and more less Christian. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of the kids they build relationships with, most of the kids they build relationships with our kids that don't know Christ, which as a Young Life leader uh, myself, minus the past two years, and I've been in Young Life, I was on staff for 15 years and was a volunteer for two years before that and was a high school kid with Young Life for two years before that. And so, you know, over half my life has has been with the, the ministry of Young Life. But yeah, it just puts you in contact with kids who are not coming from a Christian subculture a lot. And it's fun because you kind of get on the cutting edge of what culture is going to be for the next 20 years as you engage with teenagers. Yeah, that's fantastic. I remember hearing a talk at a Young Life event one time and the guy was kind of making a joke, but it was not really a joke. And he said, you know, basically that Young Life is a missional organization going into what can sometimes seem like a foreign culture with a foreign language, you know, going into the high schools. And I thought, wow, that's a great way to look at it. It's, It's a mission field. And I love that Young Life sees it that way. Cliff, two reasons that I think it's so good to have you on the podcast. Number one, you've got kids, small kids in the home. So you're 
you're in the thick of it right now. You and Laura are in the thick of it. So I love that, that you can kind of come alongside those of us who also have young kids in the home to encourage us to, to be intentional and purposeful and all that. But the other thing that I love about your experience and all that we've talked about so far, I think just lends credibility to all that we're going to talk about. Uh, and that is that, you know, high schoolers, you've done this for a long time. You have walked with high schools. You've been alongside high schoolers and middle schoolers. And so I wanted to touch on that and, and dive in there because you know things that folks like me don't know who haven't been in that sort of mission field. And so I wonder if you could just bring us into that world a little bit. What are the kind of things that you have noticed in high schools these days? And, and maybe it's public high schools, maybe it's you know private, I mean, everything in between. What are some things that maybe folks like me just who haven't had that opportunity, we might have some false assumptions, but what are some things that you have learned about that specific population? Well, um, I appreciate you saying that I know that I know high schoolers. Uh, I think I do, but I will, I will say this, and this is an unofficial statistic. So put an asterisk by it. I (laughs) believe that adolescent culture is reinventing itself at a rate of 18 months. Mm. I believe, I mean, even if you look back just at at visible, tangible things, just 18 months ago, the types of clothes that kids were wearing 18 months ago, as opposed to the types of clothes that they're wearing now, wildly different, you know, the way that they fit, you know, where the part is in their hair, is it off to the side or is it in the middle? What's behind that? There are things that are behind that, uh, that are interesting to understand. And that's not really that's a rabbit trail to get down. And, but a lot of, a lot of what I know and believe about adolescent culture comes from the work of someone named Chap Clark, uh, who's a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he's done incredible work, socio, sociological, anthropological work, um, even tied into some physiological work, like documenting the development of adolescence as a concept. And, you know, so my time studying under him and with him, he, I'm kind of, a lot of the stuff that I talk about, I feel like I'm driving Chap's car without a license. (laughs) And so if you want to get into that, uh, he wrote a book called Hurt, um, which now honestly is probably outdated, but uh, it will shock you enough um, to, that you get what you need to out of it. And it's primarily this is that uh, if you are an adult today, if you're uh, over the age of, uh, I'm going to say 28, so you're having kids, you might be listening to this podcast, you need to understand that the adolescent world that your kids are growing up in is not the same adolescent world that you grew up in. And one of the temptations is going to be to consistently try to see their world through the lenses that you have, which is just a barrier to any good kind of cross-cultural thing. And anytime we engage with adolescents, it is a cross-cultural thing. Just like, you know, for those of us who are, you know, squarely millennials um, in our 30s with kids, our, our parents, the, the adolescent culture that we grew up in was part and parcel different from what our parents grew up in. And there's a few reasons behind that we, that we can talk about, but one of the important things that uh, that Chap Clark kind of points out in his book is that the root cause of all of the uh, all of the difficulty that that today's adults have with today's adolescents is uh, is that adult the adult world has largely stepped out of the adolescent world and left them alone, and that is something that is kind of really core to 
my belief about working with, with teenagers uh, is that we is the adult world because we don't understand everything they're doing. We don't, they're, they're understanding the technology that they're using that's becoming, that is their vocabulary. They understand that better than we do. And they're living in, in literally digital worlds that we as adults don't understand. Like as soon as, as soon as your mom got on Facebook, it wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> You know, like as soon as as soon as your parents got on got Instagram accounts, like that's not where people are sharing their stuff. Mm. Like as soon as you start to understand Snapchat and and TikTok, I mean, their kids are consistently consistently finding new ways to get away from the adult world. And because of all of those efforts, uh, the adult world tends to respond by eventually just saying, "Fine, you know what? You want to be left alone? Be left alone. Mm. We give up." we're either going to use you most like, this is interesting. When you look up Gen Z on, on Google and stuff about studies around them, the number one things that pop up around, around generation Z, which as the kids who are in college and in high school today, I don't know if we've named the, the generation after them yet, but the number one thing about them is all marketing. It's, it's all, how do you market to Gen Z? How do you essentially use Gen Z? And as adults today, we didn't come up with that. Um, the systems and programs uh, that for um, maybe a century, century might be an exaggeration, but at least for the last 80 years that have been assumed to exist to, to benefit and take care of and shepherd uh, adolescents are really these days more for the benefit of the adults that are in them. And I think nowhere is that more evident than in youth sports. For instance, I mean, we don't have to look very far to find uh, a youth sports arena where uh, you don't have to pay very much attention to tell it's more about the uh, coach than it is about the kids. Um, and uh, and so uh, we have an adult world that is largely preying on uh, on adolescents uh, as their only kind of means of communication, their only grounds. They're preying on them as a market subset uh, to make money off of or to uh, uh, utilize in some way, even sometimes in Christian, Christian missional movements where it's like, we want to make an impact in the, you know, in the world. And so we're going to get kids into our thing. And because of that, kids have learned to be very skeptical of adults and institutions. And so the distance now goes both ways. Um, and we as parents, especially have to uh, wake up every morning and figure out how we're going to cross that distance again. That's powerful stuff. It can be kind of scary to think about where culture is headed and where, you know, the divide between adults and kids, like you talked about. I wanted to hone in on that point where you talked about how parents might tend to say, you know what, fine, just do your thing. You know, just, I'm just going to step out of it. Yeah. Let's dive into what are the specific consequences as you see them of that kind of response? I'm reminded of this scene in, in the movie Spanglish. It was like Adam Sandler's first not funny movie. And uh, anyway, there's this, you know, Adam Sandler is the, is the main character, but there's this, there's a, a Mexican immigrant mom, I think it's played by Paz Vega. And she has a, a daughter, a single mom and, and daughter, and she goes to be the maid for Adam Sandler's family and everything. And there's this climactic scene in the movie where like the young teenage preteen daughter is saying, mom, just give me space. I just want space. Her response in broken English is to say, no space, no space between me and you, no space. And I love that. That's kind of like this call to me 
uh, and then I would say to others is that we, as in courageous parenting, to say that there should be no space. I think that honestly, adolescence came to exist because of space between parents and children. Obviously, people have been teenagers for as long as people have been alive, but the uh, the historically uh, observable context of adolescence didn't start until the Industrial Revolution. Because prior to the Industrial Revolution, kids were apprentices of their parents. If your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. If you were a little girl, you learned how to be, uh, you learned how to make the family recipes because you watched your mom do it. And you were a child until you were an adult. There wasn't this sort of like teenage dance that we have now as a culture. Like letting your kids go used to be the betrothal process and they get married and move out. Like you were a kid until you were an adult. And what signaled you being adult was that uh, you were ready to get married and that you, uh, that you knew a trade um, or you were ready to take over and, and financially provide. The Industrial Revolution took the people away from the land, right? And, put, and, and, and in doing so, took the parents away from the children, put them in factories um, and left the, left the kids alone. And it's during that time period, really for like a two or three year period at the very beginning, where adolescence, where there starts to be this change in behavior of kids, um, of, you know, kind of like a, um, adolescence is kind of defined as this tightrope that you walk from childhood to adulthood. And the assumption is, is that you walk it alone. Uh, that's kind of the nature of a tightrope, right? Um, two people on a tightrope makes it shaky. <laughs> That's the assumption, um, but I don't know if that was God's initial design. I think, obviously, in His sovereignty, He's He's you know allowed this to happen. Um, but uh, but that was even mirrored in the churches. There there was really no such thing as youth ministry until the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and why was that? Because there wasn't a need for it. Um, because you were a child until you were an adult. So the notion that we need to give our kids space, I think, is an assumption. I think it's also a reaction, uh, especially for us as Christian folks who grew up in, in Christian environments, because gosh, like I was sheltered, you know, like I wasn't allowed to watch those movies or we had the poster of, you know, if you like this band, then you'll like this Christian subculture band. And like, we look back on that stuff and we make fun of it. And there's a lot to make fun of there, but a lot of us, almost all of us probably who are following Christ owe a whole lot to that embarrassing phase of our parents quote, sheltering us. And so I push like just me personally, this is the opinions of one man. I think that we give too much credit to letting our kids go. I think that we should be should be involved with them. We should view our parenthood as courageous parenting and apprenticing people into adulthood and as followers of Christ, discipling them into lifelong uh, relationships with Jesus. And so like, I want to I wanna push back against the notion of space. And I think that as we're training eagles to fly, you know, like we don't want to, we don't want to uh, hamper folks. Like I'm not trying to say that we should keep our kids from flying, but the people that you see who do a really good job of teaching their kids to fly. And I think that your in-laws, uh, the dressers do a really good job of this, but all of the things that they choose to let their kids do are very strategic and they've put thought into it. There's no sense that they're just running away from responsibility, um, but rather that they are intentionally allowing their kids to take like risks that they've sort of calculated because they have an end goal um, of what that looks like. Uh, and so I think that we need to like even that notion of like, oh, yeah, well, where do we need to give our kids space? Like even in the facet of giving our kids space, we need to be really involved in the giving of space. And that kind of leads into one of the main points that we 
are trying to make in this podcast and, and encourage parents to do is drive at that intentionality and that purposefulness in parenting, because it's so easy to just let life happen and, you know, Hey, just hang on for the ride. Your kids grow up really fast, you know, clothe them, feed them, do your best. And hopefully they'll turn out all right. Well, you know, obviously we reject that notion. We want to be actively involved and it, not just in their activities and showing up for sports games, which is really important, but really intensely involved in their spiritual development, teaching them the truth, modeling for them the truth and being actively involved in their lives, like life on life. I love the word you mentioned, incarnational. I mean, we can do that with our parenting and we've got to be present. We've got to look them in the eye. We've got to listen to them, hear their hearts, step into their world. It's so important. If we can bring this idea into family, you touched on family a little bit, but you know, and I kind of hesitate based on what you just said about these names that we have now, tweens and teenagers, like totally great point that these words have not been around forever. These are pretty modern terms, but this is the word that these are the words that we use. And we have, for better or worse, a lot of times we've separated our kids into these, you know, these population subgroups, you might call them. So for those of us who have kids who are entering those years, we know there's hormones going on. There's a need to belong. There's, you know, wanting to be a part of a group based on your experience in young life and, and elsewhere. What are some of the main things that we need to know as parents so that we can be as intentional as possible and be as purposeful as possible in their lives? One of my favorite, uh, one phrase that I use a lot is, and I've used this phrase in talking with my friend, Jessica Smart, our mutual friend, Jessica Smart, incredible author and thinker in terms of parenting, but is giving our kids the gift of being socially irrelevant. And I think we as parents really need to be careful what we affirm of, you know, being, uh, being popular, being cool, um, having influence. Uh, I think that, that for those of us who have been through the adolescent cycle and are now out, you know, we do recognize that, that the people who really make it far are people who have character and uh, character is not really usually developed in going to the party and doing what it takes to make a name for yourself or dating the right person, you know, uh, but yet these are the things that our kids are going to push and say, no, no, I need this. And, and for us to be able to consistently affirm, like, we don't think that you need this. This isn't going to get you somewhere good. Now, obviously, like I could get smacked in the face with this with my own children um, as teenagers. And so I definitely speak as one without knowledge. But uh, I would say that that there's a fairly consistent thread of the kids, that, of the teenagers that I've known and been friends with, where you've got parents that contend that when you see a kid who's kind of off, off the rails, it's not because they were overly sheltered. It's because they, it's because they, their parents have kind of left them uh, or let them have a little bit too much space, not ask them questions. And, and I think that I've seen a lot of parents, uh, they just honestly get tired. <laughs> they get tired and it's like, you know what? I'm not going to fight it anymore. If you're, this is who you're going to be, it's who you're going to be. And I just think that we as a community of faith have to press each other to courageous parenting again and again. And I think that's linked to courageous praying um, and fighting cynicism as Paul Miller talks about in a praying life, you know, cynicism uh, and hope uh, don't are, are diametrically opposed and you really can't have a praying spirit and be cynical about stuff. And as parents, right? Like the thing we probably pray about the most is kid is our kids. 
And, uh, and if we start to get cynical about the direction that our kids are going in, if we give up on hope that they're going to be turning into the people that we, that we have prayed since they were, before they were born, like, like, gosh, you think about a lot of times probably that happens, right? With like between the ages of, of 13 and 18, that seems like a really big distance. But when you count, when you consider that 18 is in some ways, the unofficial finish line, like think about how close you are to the end and you've held out hope this whole time. Of course, of course, you're going to struggle with cynicism then. That's when we have to have people alongside of us who are going to push us to continually be courageous uh, in, in our parenting and not give up and to say no space. Like no, no space between us. Yeah. I love that you mentioned the word sheltering. That's a word that I've thought a lot about, you know, because we homeschool our kids and that's, you know, when I thought about homeschooling growing up, that, that would have been my number one thing. Oh man, these kids are so sheltered. And now I've come to a, just a more nuanced understanding. And, and that is this, that we want to protect our kids from evil, but we don't want to protect our kids from all forms of hardship because there are some lessons that can only be learned through hardship and, you know, just failing and going through hard stuff. And so we can't protect them, nor should we protect them from all that stuff, but we should protect them from evil. And so that's part of our job as parents. Graham, that's an incredible point. I mean, like there absolutely is a difference between hardship and evil, you know, and if we really want to clip our kids' wings, and honestly, that's where a lot of people get it wrong too. Is it like, no, 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 like we need to let them experience, like we need to let them battle evil, but we need to protect them from hardship, right? Like, and you've just totally reversed that. Like it is our job, you're right, to protect them from evil, but we will clip their wings. We will, we will uh, hamstring them for life if we protect them from hardship, you know? Another question I wanted to get to, because I imagine, I mean, I don't know high schoolers one-tenth as well as you do. So I would love to just know your thoughts on this, but it seems to me, and this has probably been true for a while, but Young people, as they're coming of age, there is, and I think this is sort of built into the human heart by God, is they have a need to belong. They want to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves, that they fit somewhere. And I wonder if you could talk about what this can look like if done well in our families. If we say, hey, you belong here. You're part of us. You matter. You're important. You have gifts and abilities and we want to see those flourish. And then just how destructive that could be if they don't feel that and how they might look for it in other places. And can you talk about what that might look like for some high schoolers? Maybe here's a place to start is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maybe you remember this from like a psychology class or something like this, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, not a Christian scientist, uh, either a Christian who's a scientist or a Christian scientist. Um, uh, but, you know, you remember that pyramid that had stripes, you know, on it. The bottom of that is, a, is physiological needs. Like, and basically what it says is like, if you don't have physiological needs met, which is food, water, shelter, warmth, you know, you will not be able to think about safety. You know, so safety follows physiological needs. So safety, security, stability, freedom from fear. Like if you can't find food, water, shelter, warmth, you're not thinking about how to be free from fear, right? You're basically living an animalistic like thing. Once you have physiological needs and safety needs met, your, your psyche, your soul starts to think about belonging. All right. That's like the next level. You start thinking about friends, family, spouse, love, Right. But notice again, you're not thinking about, well, I wonder who my best friend is if you're if you don't know where your next meal is gonna come from. 
Like you just don't have capacity to think about all that stuff. So that kind of gets us to belonging. Belonging's the third of like five, you know, kind of classical breakouts of the hierarchy of needs. After belonging comes self-esteem. Self-esteem is items like achievement mastery, um, finding recognition or getting respect from other people. Notice that like you can't get that unless you have a sense of belonging, friends, family, spouse, love, you know, you're not really thinking about achievement mastery if you don't really know who you belong to or, you know, stuff like that. And then after self-esteem comes self-actualization. That's for the pursuit of inner talent, creativity, and the concept of fulfillment. Belonging holds this central part, right? And we see that kind of met in the family, primarily met in the family. The issue for American adolescents as people who are uh, specifically American adolescents, I uh, have to think that this is cross-country, cross, uh, cross-globe, is that, you know, like in 1948, the divorce rate is 2%. In, uh, you know, 2011, it's like 52, 54%. Uh, now the concept of family is this fluid concept, like apparently everything that used to be uh, is now fluid, you know, that there's, there's so much fluidity and that's, and that's one thing for adults to wrestle through. Like, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to take away the right of anyone to wrestle with the fluidity that they feel within them. I'm not trying to say that that shouldn't be there, but for someone who is trying to make their way on a tightrope from uh, childhood to adulthood by walking this tightrope, it's crucial in order for that person to make that journey, which is a treacherous inner journey that they have that belonging part of the hierarchy of needs taken care of. The problem is, is that as too many adults and parents have checked out of their kids' adolescent years and kind of given them too much space, I think that plus maybe the, the, the family, the home, not being a stable place to find belonging, find family, find friendship, find, you know, kind of the assurance of love. It's caused their souls to take that need for belonging because the need is still there, whether it's found in the family or not, the need is still there. They go and they take, and they find it in their friend groups. And so that's where you see these tribalistic loyalty cultures to a group of friends, you know, um, that's where you see a middle school girl who comes to the lunchroom um, and there just happens to not be a chair at the table for her. And she breaks into sobbing. It's because all of those crush, the, all of those needs for belonging are just crushing back in on her because she was looking to, she there, she's looking to her group of friends to do that. You know, then you've got a boy who's, who's in high school. Maybe his friends are starting to engage in behaviors that he feels like are not him, but that's where he finds his belonging. And in order for him to continue to grow, he knows kind of primally internally that he has to protect the place that he finds his belonging. Um, and so that's where you find boys that just get into this, this gang-like crowd-like mentality of, you know, you ask, you ask your teenage boy, why in the world did you do that? You know, like you all set a house on fire. Why did you do that? You know, or why did you think that it was okay for you to break into this house that nobody was living in and spray paint the walls? You know, like you're a good kid from a good family. Why'd you do this? And it's, well, because my friends were doing it right? Like we decided we were going to do this together and like, they're my friends. And, and so it's so, uh, because the, the heart, which is, which is designed to like move towards uh, these things that Maslow laid out, they're going to find that 
like it's going to sublimate. It's going to pop up somewhere else if they're not finding it. So we as parents have to do everything that we can to make sure that our families are the safe places. Here's the funny thing. And Chuck Clark notes this in his book, Hurt. He interviewed kids and they almost all said that the friend group was not a safe place to find their belonging, but they didn't feel like they had any other choice. We can fight that. As Christian parents, like we can fight that. We've got the kryptonite to that. We've got two rounds of kryptonite to that. We've got a supernatural kryptonite and we've got a very practical kryptonite. They live in our house. <laughs> they live in our houses. Like, like we, have, we have the chance to make it a place where they know that they can always come back to. And I think, you know, uh, we've got to root out the sin in our own hearts that causes us to just blow up at them. And I, like, I'm bad at that. You know, it's like, I just feel like I boil over all the time, way more than I remember my parents boiling over. It scares me. Um, and because of that, uh, the phrase I say more than anything else at the end of the day is, I'm really sorry. And when we pray together, I, I pray in front of my kids, Lord, I pray that you would forgive daddy for the places he dropped the ball uh, with the boys today. You know, and that's, that's modeling repentance, but also just like affirming to them that this thing that we're creating as a family that they're a part of, that we want it to be the place that they come back to. And, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of stuff to do with that. And, um, uh, I would say one of those things is, is that, uh, I'm a very nostalgic person. Like my memories of my home life are probably way bigger than they were in my memory. The Christmas tree was 20 feet tall, you know, um, like I'm that type of person. And, uh, but I think one of the reasons why I'm such a nostalgic person is that my upbringing was pretty much uh, free of shame. Like we're not nostalgic for places where shame exists in our mind. Um, and uh, like my high school years, I didn't make a lot of mistakes. And so like, I would love to go to a high school reunion. I'm not going to go to a college reunion though, because I did a lot of stuff in college that I'm not proud of. Um, and I have shame there and I'm not nostalgic about my college years. When people talk about your college years being the best four years of your life, mine were okay. You know, I played soccer. I, I did some different things, but I, I also did some stuff that I'm not, I'm not proud of. And I've got shame there. We don't go back to places in our minds and in our past where there's shame. And so we, as parents need to, to, uh, adapt Dallas Willard's phrase. We need to ruthlessly eliminate shame for our kids that our houses would be places that are free of shame. What language do we use that makes it, makes our kids feel like say, where we essentially say to our kids, how could you do that? You know, like, I, I think that to teach our kids that, that within the context of our family, failure is not a big deal. You know, all right, you go out for the team. You didn't make it. What's the big deal. Hey, you know, you had a crush on that girl and you, and you wanted to tell her, tell her, she said, no, it's not a big deal. And then we teach them it's not a big deal to fail. Hey, you are doing very bad in this one subject. You're doing really great in this other subject. It's not a big deal. We need to get that up. But like that, that we would ruthlessly eliminate places where shame would needle in and cause them to kind of run off into the darkness away from us is a really big thing to do. I love that, man. I've, I've thought a lot about failure over the last few years and kind of dawned on me. What's so bad about failure? What if we just owned it and said, hey, you had a goal, you didn't meet it, you failed. Not the end of the world, not even close. In fact, and, and if we act like there was no failure, then we won't learn the proper lessons. What we need to do is just not make it that big a deal and say, hey, it's part of life, part of having grit is getting back up and trying and trying to improve and owning where you, know, you, you may not have met your own expectations. That's not just okay. That is a crucial lesson for kids to learn so we can guide our kids in that way. That's, 
I'm so glad you brought brought up the concept of failure. That's awesome. These are treacherous waters we're about to go into, and I didn't prep you for this question, so feel free to pass on it. But we have to talk about technology when we talk about kids, and you touched on it a little bit. Obviously, you could you could have an entire podcast on technology for kids, but quickly, I wonder if you could talk to us about how the online world. And I heard recently that sometimes kids see the online world as more authentic than what you and I would consider like face-to-face interactions being, you know, being more real. And so when I first heard that, I was like, wow, that is crazy. And this goes back to your point earlier, which is like, things are so much different. I mean, I'm 40. We didn't, nobody had a cell phone. We had like beepers and pagers. That was like, <laughs> that was cool <laughs> when I was in school. So the Can you world imagine is, having a pager now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love, but so the world is completely different. And I've got kids who are, you know, that we're talking about when are we going to give our kids a phone and all that. It's just, I, 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 there's not even a question there, but I wonder if you could just help us prepare as parents for this whole online world. How can we help our kids, you know, think of it rightly. Ooh, can we, can we have a second podcast on this question? Yeah, we probably will have to. Here's this a teaser is that as adults, the online world is, is, is something that you don't know. Like, so right. When we view parenting, we view ourselves putting our arms around our kids and leading them into the world. The online world is a world that we're releasing them into that we don't really know enough about like what's possible by app developers, what's possible when kids from different sides of the globe, like teach you, like to have, to have an eighth grader tell her wildlife, which is young life's ministry to middle school, to have an eighth grader tell her wildlife leader that she's pansexual. Like, where did she learn that? Well, from the internet, you know, uh, like we, we do not understand what's, what's happening. And so we would not, send our kids to physical spaces that we didn't understand without going with them. But instead we're, we're letting them in our houses go to what is now, like you've got to, you've got to get your head around this is that what is happening in the online world is reality. It's not, it's not like alternate reality. It is reality. Like an, an illustration of this from like 10 years ago, one of my buddies on Young Life staff, Craig, um, we, it was during Snowmageddon, if you remember that it might be more than 10 years ago at this point, but Snowmageddon, we got all that snow on the East Coast, it was awesome. Um, school was out for like two and a half weeks. And on the first day back from school at, Craig, at the high school Craig was leading at, there were eight fights before lunch. There were eight fights before lunch. And all the teachers were like, how did this happen? They haven't been, ra- been around each other. Well, it's because they had, been, they had been fighting online. The online world is the new commons area of the high school. It is the new park that people went to. Like, it's that what you witness there in that, and we've only seen it more and more and more since then. It's, a con- it's commonplace now, but it's that, it's that the interactions that are happening online are the real interactions. It's not something that's like extra to reality. I mean, that is reality, right? So we as adults, we're like, no, 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 that's not reality because it's happening online. You're out of your mind, adults. You are out of your mind. When your kid gets on that phone and is talking to somebody on the other side of the world, like they could be talking to somebody on the other side of the world. All right. Like we kind of learned about this with chat rooms in like the late nineties or something like that, where it's like, Hey, that girl from California that you're talking to that, like you might meet up with might not be a little girl, might be an old man, you know, like 
And then somehow, because it's, you know, it's on a phone, we've forgotten. Or not only that, but like, you just don't know, like we can't abandon our kids. If, and that's not even to talk about all of the scientific things that are, that are shaping the neuro pathways in our kids' brains at an early age by giving them exposure to these phones. By giving them by giving them such high level exposure, I mean what it's doing to dopamine, what it's doing. I mean, like I'm throughout words, I don't even know what they mean, but I've I've read I've read a couple of things about it. But like you, we do not know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing, and because we don't know what we're doing, I'm not getting my kids' phones until they're 16 years old. Like, and I don't, and I don't care that they don't have TikTok. Like. I'm not, I will, I will risk if they're going to hate me for the rest of their lives. I'll, I'll risk that because I don't, I do not want to let them loose in a world uh, like that. And by, by the way, if the CEOs of Apple and Microsoft and the people who invented these things have bets going with each other of how, of who can hold out the longest before they get their kids a phone, if they're doing that and they're the ones who created this stuff, there's no way that you and I should be should be trusting trusting this technology in, in the hands of kids. I don't care how convenient it is for you as a parent. So, yeah, 16 is the age that we've thought about. We don't have a 16-year-old yet, but that's what we've been planning on. One of the principles of what you just said, I think, is that we need to care more about our kids than we care what our kids think about us, <laughs> which is hard sometimes. I mean, telling a kid in love, no, because it's in their best interest even if they don't see it is so hard. And um, yeah, I mean, I know there's not like a magical age, but I think the better part of wisdom would, would be as late, as late as reasonably possible uh, just because of all of the, you know, the treacherous waters that come with technology. So thank you for sharing about that. Okay. So to sort of wrap up this discussion, one of the things that we always try to do in the podcast is think about, we want to talk about parenting and how we can be good and faithful parents to our kids and we've talked a lot about that. We also want to be missional in a way. So God can do great things within our families, but he also wants to do great things through our families. So, you know, a lot of listeners will be Christian parents who are trying to raise their kids and the, the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord. But we wanted to go further than that. So our families could be part of the advancement of God's kingdom. And I wonder if you could talk about how, you know, we operate as a family. How can that be used to bless others in our community, whether it's friends at school or friends in the soccer field, like how can we be strategic in our mission for the Lord with our kids as our kids, you know, start getting into in, uh, you know, in middle school and high school and beyond, how can we be missional? So as usual, I have one philosophical idea to start with, and then I'll get into practicals. Uh, the philosophical idea is that we are at risk as parents of using our children to make an impact at the world, uh, make an impact in the world if we're not careful, and our kids will resent us for that. And so we need to make sure that we're inviting them into the story that we as a family are living. Again, I'm just a parent. Um, Donald Miller, who is, I guess, a somewhat controversial figure, depending on how orthodox you are, um, but he's been hugely influential in my life, starting Blue Like Jazz and, and on through a lot of stuff. But he's done a ton of work with story, uh, especially recently, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, uh, his marketing book, Story Brand. Um, is really based on this. And he's got a new book coming out, which called uh, A Hero on a Mission, that I think is going to be a whole lot about the story that you're telling in life. 
But I think that we need to make sure that our kids understand that because we are the Wrights, because we're the Clarks, we live a different story. And you are a part of that story. You're one of the characters in that story. I'm not trying to live my story vicariously through you. I'm actually inviting you into my, into my story, you know? And so we have to make sure that we are doing, as the parents, that we're doing the things that we're asking our kids to, to, to be a part of and that we're bringing them with us um, in that. I also think that kids who find themselves in a grand story will act like characters in the grand story. I think Don Miller told the story, it was either him or Bob Goff, of a friend uh, whose daughter was kind of dating uh, guys that were beneath her station. As a, as a young Christian woman, and he couldn't figure out how to get her to stop, but they as a family decided they were going to go to uh, Africa, and while they were there, they served in an orphanage, and they got really fired up, and they decided they were going to build an orphanage, and they were going to raise money as a family, and they were going to build an orphanage over there, and he said that as they got more and more into and more and more passionate about being a family who built an orphanage, he noticed that she started not bringing those guys around anymore. And he, what he noted, what he took from this is that high school girls who build orphanages in Africa don't date crappy guys. That's awesome. And that's the thing is that are we, are we serious about living a story that we want our kids to be the characters in? Are, are, are we think about the character and characters that we want our kids to be, but are we creating the story around them? Are we living the story around them for, the, for those sorts of characters to find themselves into? And, uh, and so that can play out as a family who travels the world together. You know, that we're going to, instead of getting Christmas presents that every year we're going to decide we're going to go somewhere. We're going to save up the credit card miles. We're going to save up the money that we would have spent for Christmas and we're going to travel the world together. Uh, it could be that our, we know as a family that our house is going to be a place where all the neighborhood kids are going to be. And I would encourage all Christian families living in neighborhoods to make your house Grand Central Station for the neighborhood. Yes. Uh, Preach it, brother. Uh, get your car- I love it. Get your carpets dirty run out of like spend too much money on snack food and little bags of goldfish and stuff. But, uh, but have kids over to your house, even kids that are not the kids that you want your kids to behave like, because those kids need that. And so that we see our houses and our families as lighthouses that we live our families incarnationally in the neighborhoods that we live in. And then there's the other great stuff. I mean, you don't have to go across the world to, uh, uh, to tell a good story. You can uh, just go uptown and tell a good story. But man, let's be those characters for ourselves. Let's, let's tell those stories for our kids to find themselves in, in order that they would grow up into the characters that we long to see them grow up into. If we're not telling a good story with our family, our kids' desire for adventure is going to cause them to find a better story, more exciting story somewhere else. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. I love that idea of teaching your kids that God is writing a story in our family, and you're a really important character in that and there's adventure and there's life and maybe there's drama but there's beauty and there's peace and fulfillment and all that stuff and I just I love that idea of our family as being a story that God is writing and I also love that concept of our family as a lighthouse I could not agree more with you about making your home a central hub and making it a cool place spending money, making a big deal. So kids actually want to be there. And it's not just about our kids. We do want to pour into our kids and invest in them, but we also want our families, like you said, to be a lighthouse to the communities around us. I remember hearing a guy, this was years ago, and it's always stuck with me. And he said, Christians ought to be the best neighbors in the neighborhood, the best neighbors. You know, are we the kind of neighbors that lend our tools easily? Are we the kind of neighbors that welcome kids in where kids feel safe and valued and you know, it's fun and like we're giving to the community and that's 
I just, I love what you said about lighthouses. That is fantastic. I mean, I, I think of Jesus's words about being a city on a hill that, you know, that should not be hidden. I love that. So man, thank you so much. Let's say just one thing you can think of that a parent, especially a parent who's got kids in the home still, what's one challenge that you would say, all right, take this nugget away and you could do something like this week, you could make a change in your family that would change your trajectory for years. What would be one thing that comes to mind? What if you wrote a mission statement for your family with, with your kids? Like, what if you sat down and just said, Hey, tonight over dinner, we're going to get a big, we're going to get a big blank piece of paper and we're going to write what we want our family to be about and to allow them to, to be a part of that. And then to, uh, you know, spend some time formulating that mission statement. That's another kind of Don Millerism. And I think that that could be really good that, and then reject, like stop being ashamed of, of the idea of, of instead of calling it sheltering our kids, let's curate the world to our kids. Yeah. You know, you think about an art curator, it's somebody who has an eye for art and who is bringing pieces of art to a place where people can see it. Uh, let's curate the world to our kids because they are, they are our key constituency as it would be. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Well, that'll do it. Thank you so much, Cliff, for your time and all your expertise and all of the research. And I can tell you've read so many good books. These are great challenges for us. And I'm going to put those in the show notes so people can check out some of those resources you've mentioned. But uh, man, appreciate you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for this chance. Wow, what a cool concept to see our families as lighthouses in our neighborhoods and communities. I don't know if that excites you guys. It really excites me. Cliff, thank you so much, brother. You are wise beyond your years, man. And it is a blessing to know you and to have learned from you and have been challenged by you. So thank you so much. Keep up the great work, brother. Well, check us out on strategicfamilies.com. We'd love to see you there and hear from you as you strive to create a strategic family for God's glory. All right, we will see you next time.